0: If you're leading with messaging and PR, right, you sign the BRT statement, you commit to two or three things, but you don't have a plan, even one year later, I think we're going to see companies being held accountable to that. The FT and other media outlets are already doing indices of our companies keeping their promises, something that any of us can understand as business people.
1: From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Vivian Hunt, one of our guests today strongly recommending that companies only make promises to stakeholders that they can actually keep. In the second part of our podcast series on environmental, social, and corporate governance issues, commonly referred to as ESG, we turn now to stakeholder capitalism. This term has become a buzzword for companies acting in socially responsible ways. But what does the S in ESG really entail? Whom should it benefit? And how do business leaders most effectively put it into practice. To answer these questions, we're speaking today with the co-authors of a recent article, The Case for Stakeholder Capitalism, which you can find on McKinsey.com. Dame Vivian Hunt is a senior partner in our London office. She serves clients on a broad range of strategic topics, including performance transformation, productivity growth, organizational agility, and diversity and inclusion. Bruce Simpson is a former senior partner of the firm and is based in Toronto. During his time at McKinsey, Bruce co-led our ESG and purpose practice across the firm. He's currently the CEO of the Schwartzman Foundation and is a senior advisor to Blackstone Investments and to McKinsey. Bruce, Vivian, welcome. Bruce, can you please start us off by explaining exactly what you mean by stakeholder capitalism and how does that differ from the capitalism that most corporations have been practicing today?
2: Yes. Well, I think that the real issue today is a trade-off between short-termism and long-termism. 80% of CFOs shockingly confess to us on surveys that they would reduce discretionary spending on potentially high NPV activities like R&D and marketing. They would sacrifice that spending in order to achieve short-term earnings targets. So they are literally sacrificing the long term for the short term. And yet we have some very compelling maths uh, around uh, the fact that companies that do actually think for the long term, and by long term we mean five to seven years, actually outperform the short term substantially. 47% higher revenue growth, for example, over almost a 15-year period. Now, stakeholder and shareholder interests, uh, we believe, actually align in the long term because that's where these different stakeholder groups actually meet. If you have happy employees, collaborative suppliers, a satisfied regulator, devoted consumers, then these different groups will meet uh, with higher benefits for each of these different players over a longer term period. It's hard to satisfy everybody in the short term There you are making trade-offs, for example, between purpose and profit. But in the long term, we don't believe that that trade-off actually exists. Now, the crystallizing concept we would nudge on is purpose-driven ESG, which actually takes those long-term views and captures them into a framework. And we would suggest that companies thinking about, well, how do we deliver on this long-term stuff, start by asking a question, what is your purpose? What would the world lose? If your company disappeared, if you're a bank and you didn't exist tomorrow, could other banks simply provide your products and services and the world would be no worse off because you have disappeared? Or rather, is there some real sizzle, some differentiating benefit that you bring the world which can shape your strategy, inspire your people and steer the company at critical moments of truth? That's a a big question.
1: Thanks, Bruce. So stakeholder capitalism at its core aims to satisfy all of a company's stakeholders, not only its shareholders, but over the longer term, right? So how should those fundamental benefits that you just mentioned inform a company's relationships with their stakeholders and with their ESG priorities?
2: ESG at one level is simply, uh, it's a checklist of things conveniently bucketed under environmental social and governance benefits. It does provide this concept of measurement and metrics though. So purpose-driven ESG we think linking the core benefit the company brings to the world and its purpose anchored through ESG priorities is the framework to use. Uh, impact on society can be in the environmental space. Well then we know a number of for example extractive companies are weaker on the environmental space. They need to focus on that vulnerability to be credible in this space. But those companies actually bring a social benefit to some remote parts of the world because they bring a living wage to often quite remote regions. And today, looking across ESG, probably the number one biggest issue in America today through surveys is actually labor practices. Am I earning a living wage? Am I actually receiving uh, health benefits Uh, Focusing on employing minorities and helping them advance and succeed is a big deal, too. And then governance. If you really want to make a mess of things, then forget about governance. And this is where we have seen some companies, for example, who desperately need an integrated approach across ESG. They might, for example, reduce their environmental investments in order uh, to focus more on S during COVID, which, of course, is an S-crisis. And they might make a positive statement in support of of Black Lives Matter, but at the same time, lay off frontline employees, do a share buyback, not pay their fair share of taxes and increase CEO compensation. That would be a trifecta of how to get this wrong. You have to have an integrated approach. You have to know where you're vulnerable on these areas and tackle those to be credible.
1: One question companies often asked is how to ensure that all these ESG initiatives they're pursuing are actually understood and valued by the outside world. How do you suggest companies get stakeholders on board so they become their champions, or at least their partners? Very important. And I think one of the criticisms of the Business
2: Roundtable that made that famous statement uh, that stakeholders were up there with shareholders a couple of years ago, was that that statement was not developed actually through engaging first with stakeholders. And it's a very big deal to know what's on the minds of stakeholders. You need to have listening posts and 10A out into the media. You need to be understanding what people are saying about you out there, because that's the best way to discover what your vulnerabilities are. Your harshest critics are out there, but they are also the ones you need to listen to because they will focus on those vulnerabilities, which you have to tackle to be authentic and credible. We would argue, though, on stakeholders, I'm sure Vivian would agree with this, too, that it starts with your own employees. We've seen a, an inverted pyramid on governance where if your employees are not satisfied with where the company's going, they're gonna to go to social media very quickly. And you're gonna read about that in the press. So having a very strong link to what your employees are feeling right now is perhaps the
0: first thing to do to make sure you're you're linked in to, to stakeholders. Um any of us as business leaders, you know, can have the best intentions, but absolutely be disconnected and get it wrong and be Technology platforms that are available today mean that those feedback loops for the company can be immediate. And that's why it's it's more strategy than it is tactics in terms of getting this linked to purpose in ESG.
1: Okay, so why has stakeholder capitalism risen so much in importance recently, given capitalism's century-long history? Why now?
2: Sean, 92% of people want large corporations to promote an economy that serves everyone but only 50 percent believe large companies are delivering uh, on that goal if you want to hire generation Z today they're going to ask strong questions about what you're actually doing for the planet and for society and there are almost 40 percent of consumers boycotting a product or a service right now not because they're not happy with the performance of the product but because of the social stance or lack thereof of that particular product and its company. So there's uh, stakeholders, society, expectations, the forces are moving very strongly in this direction. And CEOs tell us that they're spending 50% of their time on this topic right now. So it's very important to get it right.
1: So. If you are getting it right, how does stakeholder capitalism link to value creation? In other words, how does attention, you know, paying proper attention to stakeholders help you both manage external risk, but also enhance corporate performance? Vivian, would you care to take that one?
0: Our, our research and evidence with clients links it very strongly to traditional sources of value, top line growth, you know, attracting B2B you know supply chain, um, and B2B relevance as well as B2C. The notion of companies that you feel are more sustainable, more differentiated, more aligned with your values justify a price premium. We know that 80% of consumers would switch brands if price and quality were equal and there was more aligned with their perspective on the company's ESG. They have to understand what your perspective is, but they also then will switch. And it's also interesting, we've got a new piece of work looking at the, the role of the uh, Black Citizen in the US, and we found within many affinity groups, be it gender, be it black employees in this case, that oftentimes the switching behavior is even higher. So if you look at how quickly some of those brands that are really a good business model, but also ESG-led, some of that growth you see is because people are switching. Policy and regulatory alignment is another example. The notion of having the right policy and in- arrangement, the right framework, if you will, gives you more freedom and more opportunities for growth as a company. And so this isn't about whether regulators are good or bad, but having a closer, more collaborative relationship where you can find those win-win areas. Some things you actually need regulators to help you fix. You know, there are some problems within value chains and within business systems or in society that are, are so broad, no one company can or maybe even should take on the responsibility for solving them. And that's, uh, I think, the principle under a number of the sustainable development goals from the UN or something like food waste in the grocery and packaged good industry, where you want to see 20%, 30% of the value chain from players in the industry combine with the regulators to come up with more innovative solutions. FinTech is another great example where the changes are happening so quickly in financial services in terms of reach and enablement and new types of products and services. We want to educate and keep the regulators right with us so that we can have the maximum offer and growth, uh, particularly on platform-enabled financial services. So we really all know how quickly uh, regulatory changes can hit our earnings and uh, returns. But if you think that it could hit 30 or 40 percent of your EBITDA, you would significantly factor it in. Just to take one more uh, case that's particularly important for developed markets and uh, medium and slower growth economies um, is this notion of productivity uplift. You know, the the majority of workers who are going to be in our workforces by 2030 and 2035 are in the workforce today. Some of them are 20, some of them are 55. But most people will need to work longer and in jobs that are going to be more technology-enabled. And so this notion of how do you really find productivity uplift? Now, that could be something as simple as employee engagement, motivation, and lower attrition. Or it could be something that links to new ways of working and upskilling. But how do we get a more effective and productive worker, particularly in slower, structurally slower growth economies, is the key to economic growth and quality jobs. And so solving that with your stakeholders, not in isolation, is another really clear example of the concrete financial benefits.
1: So you could argue that after shareholders, customers have long been the next-in-line stakeholder group that companies have focused on. Is it common for companies to start with their customers rather than their employees in terms of prioritizing ESG efforts?
0: Well, the notion of starting with your customers or your employees is probably the one that's closest to most companies' hearts. Start with your customers, start with your employees' or maybe start with your suppliers and value chains. Those are the things we know, they're absolutely intrinsic to what we do. Customers, it is um, I think important to recognize the broad different uh, range of roles and occasions that a single customer can have. The same customer who is today purchasing your products may have different choices and segment and narrow or broaden how they engage with you and what they will pay for and why. Secondly, they are also citizens and taxpayers They may also have a partner, someone else in their household, who is a member of your supply chain, Um, and they also look at your community engagement, particularly, as we've seen at times of real crisis. And so it's important to recognize that any single stakeholder can be in multiple states at one time. You know, I think about it, you know, you're a parent, you're a professional, you're um, a a daughter, a sister, um, and an apprentice all at the same time, all in one person. And so the same thing is true of your customers. So customers that might be loyal to one set of products and services under one set of assumptions might become very dissatisfied with your policies, say, on E, or community engagement, and may change their posture while still being your customers. So they are a, a good, safe, credible place to start. But if you only think about them in terms of price and volume, we would argue that's probably too narrow a lens on
1: customers. So has the COVID-19 crisis shifted where companies put their emphasis in terms of serving stakeholders? For example, are the societal issues that the pandemic highlighted now higher on the corporate agenda?
0: You know, none of us were really fully prepared. Uh, with Great apology to the public health uh, experts for COVID. That came as a global surprise. And we, none of us were really ready for that in systemic terms. But it's not a new issue. And so you have the time to plan you know, do the risk management, but also think of the more creative differentiating ideas. One point that Bruce said earlier around how priorities shift within the NESG agenda, and that's why, you know, we think of it as a taxonomy as well as a capability, a muscle that you have to build to be able to respond. The approach around E and sustainability is so much more systemic and quantified and accepted that it's almost unrecognizable from five years ago. Today, accelerated and brought into full frame by COVID, how do you think about structure and response and really building capabilities around F is the thing that we see on many business leaders' minds, but also on the minds particularly of employees and customers. Where am I spending my money? What is it about the place that I work? How are they looking after their broader value chains? The other thing is we know these things don't go away. It's Not to say that E's not important or G's not important. It's just saying right now, a systematic approach to employee benefits Diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, of course, community engagement are really at the forefront and probably have had less focus in the past and need uh, real time and attention.
1: Thank you, Vivian. And, And so assuming companies are ready to move forward on ESG, how should they prioritize among the very many different stakeholders and their related concerns? Should they pick one area where they lead their industry and make that their main commitment? First is,
0: there is a set of minimum practices. You could say that minimum is risk management, You're playing defense. You know What's the core set of things around ESG that we need to be seeing to do? Regulatory compliance would be the absolute dead minimum. Basic wage transparency, I think, is now accepted as another one, if not <laughs> by society, certainly by your investors. And making sure that you even have a robust approach on ESG, I think, is part of the new minimum. But that really is mitigating risk, doing the minimum required in your industry and for a company, and being able to answer basic questions. It's not yet building on better practice. The first thing I'd say is there's like a new base camp and a new normal that's at a much higher level of sophistication and analysis that than many companies are at. So one, just getting it yourself up to good practice is the first step and recognizing that that playing field has changed and the bar is it's higher and it's more complex. The second thing I'd say is this notion of trade-offs. You focus on one or two things at one time. And if you do that excellently and well, there are normally a number of uh, multiplier benefits. So super serving employees, as uh, Bruce was saying, or really focusing on your customer or your or your value chain. And so I, I think it's less as trade-offs between the two. We call it sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul as if there's some finite amount of benefit. What are the things that we do that are distinctive that actually grow the pie, right? In value terms, in in reputation terms, so that we have enough capacity to be at good practice. And secondly, to one or two areas to be distinctive.
2: Yeah, I think that there is a very important question uh, 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 which you touched on, which is where am I most vulnerable right now as a company? What, what, on which of these ESG dimensions are we the weakest? We have to tackle that. That's not a trade-off. That's a must strategically uh, and also for different stakeholder groups. If, for example, it's the frontline pay of your employees is low and they aren't able to actually sustain putting food on the table and a roof over their heads during COVID, you need to go there. At the same time, I believe that if you shift that perspective, we're going to shift away from E to focus more on S. I think that's a big mistake because those people uh, who feel that the environment really is the biggest challenge today will will be disappointed. And so I actually think that uh, you double down uh, on any stakeholder group now, that will pay off in the short term to benefit everybody by building a healthier ecosystem.
1: So should companies be looking at ESG and stakeholder concerns primarily through the lens of financial and performance benefits, or do you advise that companies take a bigger picture view?
0: When you outline those benefits, you'll find that there are not only financial benefits, but there are also moral as well as cultural reasons that are also to the company's advantage, you know, helping to be, to to have a sustainable, productive, profitable, long-term business. Issues like the wealth gap: what is the net disposable income um, and a living wage that not just my employee but the household that they're in are working in? How does that fit relative to the benefit structure that they're in? When you look at the impact on real wages with the increased technological requirements of jobs and increase use, particularly in uh, Western large economies of uh, flexible working in the gig economy, even before COVID, you really see some areas where real wages are are falling. And so sometimes we worry about uh, an investor or activist investor pointing out CEO pay, but many more of them are looking at the differential, the spread between the highest and the average or lowest paid, and also what's the sustainability of that at household level. Mental health is a really uh, pertinent example. 41% of Americans, uh, I think everyone, if they're honest, during COVID has struggled um, with their health and wellness and productivity during the pandemic, and that's everything from people being frozen and isolated and not knowing how to participate at work if they're working from home or overworking from home. The 60% of the population that can't work from home um, and therefore has been at work sometimes on front line. And there can be many things that you can do around, for example, employee benefits to both increase the flexibility to self-manage it with good tools and resources, some many of which are uh, online these days, and also have triggers. So, for example, we have a client that not only doubled their mental health and wellness, they kept that increased capacity, people self-manage and self-declare, but they also track it. So if someone goes over three days, their health information is still confidential, but they get a call. They find out just what's driving this, and they are already seeing their mental health and wellness interruptions and costs already come down even before we fully reopen the economy. Gender participation and uh, racial and cultural inequity is a massive source of leakage. My grandmother used to say, if a pipeline is leaking, you don't blame the water. Right? We as business leaders have to ask ourselves, what's wrong with the pipeline? Then How can we repair it? as well as build a better, stronger pipeline so we can keep the women and historically underrepresented groups that we have. But bluntly, our economic growth depends on, one, stopping the higher interruptions in their productivity that we've experienced during COVID, the moment we're in right now as we reopen so many businesses and reconnect and keep our economy moving, and also address the unique circumstances. In some ways, we've come to know some of our stakeholders in a deeper, more personal, and profound way but those also give you markers where they might need more support to support their productivity. So, for example, one client has found that households that are either single are going through any type of relationship disruption, or they're a single parent. They just need more support. And so keeping that, not making it a function of the COVID response, will make those employees more engaged and more loyal. And that adds to economic development because we know all high-performing companies Every sector, every country, every city, we know that all high-performing companies are more diverse. So these things are linked to economic value, but they're also linked to the right thing to do for your company, and you can lay out those benefits and bring your stakeholders on that journey.
1: Got it. And so let's say somebody is about to embrace stakeholder capitalism. What are some of the pitfalls that you've seen or any specific missteps that you'd advise companies definitely avoid as they begin this journey.
0: So we really do encourage you to learn from the hard lessons that others have learned. Uh, We've got some uh, clients who have, for example, announced bold goals on F. You know, we're going to try and increase women to 30% or 40% of the total company, but they didn't have a plan for how to get there and weren't able to meet those goals. And, you know, the CEO and leaders felt embarrassed. But when you look at it, you know, a business goal with no initiatives to deliver it, of course it didn't happen. And similarly on G, I think that the evidence base around being criteria-based, transparent, ethical data management, all of that's going to go up. But if you're leading with messaging and PR, right, you sign the BRT statement, you commit to two or three things, but you don't have a plan, even one year later, I think we're going to see companies being held accountable to that. The FT and other media outlets are already doing indices of our companies. Keeping their promises—something that any of us can understand just as business people—are you building on your strengths? You know, you can't copy your competitors. You have to build on what Bruce calls your superpowers—the things that you're uniquely good at, that you want to be famous for. One other one I'll uh, highlight is this notion of not having short-term progress, in addition to mid and long-term gains. You've got to break your objectives and goals down. If you're working towards gender parity or a expect effective mitigation and conversion of your environmental footprint, ethical practices, and client selection. You know, whatever goal you're working towards, it takes time to achieve it. Markets, as well as your stakeholders, will be patient if they know you're making progress to that goal. So you must have short-term objectives. There's no aspect of business that's just trust me and see. You want metrics and evidence along the way, and it also de-risks it for the management team and, um, and the company.
1: Thank you. So let's maybe shift now to the how. How should companies approach this journey to embracing stakeholder capitalism? Bruce, do you want to take that one?
2: There are, we think, four steps equally relevant to startups, private companies, public companies, because each of those groups uh, of companies has stakeholders that count. Now, the journey starts, uh, we would say, by exploring your world. Every company had a purpose when it was first created. And that purpose went well beyond just making profits. The profits were an output of delivering on its purpose. And so for many companies, it's actually listening to that great past. Perhaps some of those great things in the past need to be dusted off and brought back to the, to the surface. Now, it's a listening exercise. What's exciting to your employees uh, in a world where 70% of the workforce is not actively engaged today? Just imagine the uplift, and Vivian talked to this, those people actually came to work with not just bringing rigor, discipline, obedience, but also bringing creativity, collaboration, thinking out of the box. What would excite your employees as a purpose? So a listing exercise um, uh, to your stakeholders. Then defining your contribution. Where are we most vulnerable? And we have to crush that. We have to bring our negative outliers into being at least in the zone, as Vivian mentioned. Uh, And if you are a negative outlier on any dimension of ESG, then that is actually going to increase your cost of capital. So you need to bring that at least into to the average and then focus on your superpower. What's that going to look like? Where, as Aristotle said, where do your strengths overlap with the world's needs? There lies your vocation. Uh, And then you develop a narrative and a focus on that vocation, which is embedded into the business. The embedding stage three is very important. I think the most important factor here is you're going to embed that into the business. It's going to be measurable. It's going to be definable in ESG terms. And you had better embed it before you talk about it too much externally. So much purpose-washing criticism has come up recently, largely because companies talk externally before they're actually, they've actually put their own house in order through execution of some of these things. So we think that the uh, the external statements should probably come last, you know, where, where that's possible.
1: Okay, Bruce, given what you've just discussed, could you also describe for us what exactly goes into an ESG teardown exercise? What is that exactly, and where does it fit along the steps that you just described?
2: This is basically Baselining. Where do we rack and stack today across the various metrics, MSCI, CDP, Bloomberg, and so on? How do we stack up against our competitors on uh, each of the E, S, and G dimensions to see where are we strong and where are we weak? Interestingly, uh, Vivian talked to diversity a few minutes ago. I think only half of companies in America even report on their diversity. So if you're doing good things on diversity, but you aren't reporting it, that's not going to be picked up by the rating agencies. So you aren't going to get a great score on diversity, which perhaps you might deserve. And then defining the sources of value, the biggest risk, but the opportunities too, uh, uh, is a big deal.
1: So in order to serve multiple stakeholders, a company needs to know who they are and what their interests are. How do you identify and then connect with the many various stakeholders a company might have?
2: So you need to categorize, because they are a bit separate, the internal stakeholders, which we think are the most important, uh, and having your antennae out uh, uh, to employees first. We really do think that's the most important stakeholder group, because they get it. They see uh, what's right and what's wrong uh, with the company's governance. And then the external ones, which have a direct implication, a direct interaction with the company, your suppliers, for example, and then those that have an indirect uh, interaction by setting the operational context that you work in, that would be broader society, that would be the regulators.
1: And so uh, this, this question is more around, you know, what's, what's the time horizon here? We talked earlier about the importance of the longer term. How far into the future should companies plan their stakeholder or ESG initiatives? Is, for example, making commitments to reach a goal by 2050? Too distant in the future to be relevant.
0: I wouldn't say 2050 is irrelevant, but I would say is it's in your moonshot or philanthropy. You know, moonshot is about a big innovation investment that you don't expect to be on your current business horizons. Philanthropy is something that you might invest in, and you don't expect a direct return. So, Apple investing in computer science uh, technicians and experts to build the next generation of them, funding it through primary, secondary schools, fantastic, hundred-plus million-dollar commitment. It called under long-term strategic philanthropy, but it might help them attract and retain more talent today. So think of moonshot and philanthropy of things where we don't expect a return in shareholder impact in the near, medium, or long-term, but we still believe it's the right thing to do, reinforcing of our purpose and in ESG initiative.
1: So this one is, so you're a CEO and you've got a great purpose for your company, but how do you make the purpose at a corporate level meaningful to individual employees beyond just communicating that this is what we're about. We all
0: want to have a sense of purpose in what we do, even when it's complex, very technologically driven, hard to explain and understand. How could you possibly work at a energy and oil and gas firm? Well, if you want to mitigate, transform, apply innovation and adapt, we need really smart people in tough industries. And so that sense of team goals, working towards real meaning at a system level also results in more individual meaning. It's when where you work and spend all your daylight working hours aligns with what your team is trying to do, your responsibilities as a member of that team, and it's also aligned with your sense of meaning and purpose. That really does lead to increased relevance and retention. Interesting, the UK has a gender data set that over 10,000 companies participate in around gender parity, and its highest use is not from the media. It's from recruits, people who are applying for jobs to their companies to ask sharp questions in the interview, but also see where their companies stack up. So it really is a virtuous cycle if you approach it strategically and stick with it over the medium and long term. You know, Just to build on that
2: striking survey that we just did uh, uh, showed that 85% of their execu- of executives and upper management agree they can live their purpose in their day-to-day work. So 85% of senior execs are getting their purpose from work. 85% of the front line do not, right? So therefore, their purpose comes from something else than work. As a result, uh, you know, they're not bringing their best selves to work necessarily. So what do you do? How do you lead? How do you design frontline roles in order that people can come to work and find that what they're doing at work, you know, is uh, aligned with their personal purpose and excites them?
1: So maybe this is our final question. It's for both of you. You mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you've just mentioned, you've called table stakes ESG practices. But also you mentioned that the bar continues to move up. So where should companies start and what should they do to get to that next level that you've been describing?
2: I'd say measure where you are today. You need to know what your ESG footprint is today. That's crucial. And then discover the magic. What is that uh, essential strength that you bring, which uh, is understood and felt also by your uh, employees and your stakeholders So everybody can get excited about that area of focus. And then you make that area of focus a strategic differentiating factor uh, which helps you deliver uh, in the long term uh, uh, on each dimension for stakeholders and also for shareholders.
0: I agree. Understanding where you are in concrete, quantitative as well as qualitative terms um, of how your purpose is linked to your strategy and where you are today on ESG. Just knowing where you start in a fact-based way in collaboration with your stakeholders is absolutely where I'd start. And then from there, you make choices. You don't take on a full all singing and all dancing ESG strategy. You pick one or two areas to really build from your strength and build out capabilities and then add, expand, reduce from there. But use that to define the choices of where you really want to make a difference.
1: Vivian, Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Um, and thank you also to our listeners. A transcript of this podcast will be made available on our Inside the Strategy Room page at McKinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to download and listen to the podcast that opened our series on ESG called The Role of ESG in Purpose. We also encourage you to subscribe to Inside the Strategy Room on your favorite podcast player if you'd like to hear the final episode in this series. In that episode, Vivian and Bruce will speak with Franz Pasha, who oversees stakeholder management for PayPal, a company that has defined its strategy through the lens of its purpose. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at room at McKinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on McKinsey.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.